HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Inside Julia's Kitchen is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Employee-owned Bob's Red Mill offers organic, gluten-free, stone-ground products. Visit bobsredmill.com today. Summer is now in full swing, and that means so is Heritage Radio Network's Summer Membership Drive. Please consider joining the Heritage Radio Network community by becoming a member. If you're a regular Inside Julia's Kitchen listener, think about setting up a monthly recurring donation. It's just $5 a month for an individual membership or $10 a month for one for your whole household. Your ongoing support helps ensure the future of Heritage Radio Network and its unique programming. Go to heritageradionetwork.org forward slash donate to join and check out the membership benefits now. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our program takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's podcast, we welcome award-winning food writer, cookbook author, notably of the best-selling Barbecue Bible, founder of Barbecue University, and host of the new PBS television series Project Fire, Stephen Reichland. In this episode, we'll talk to Stephen about summer grilling, his Project Fire series, and we'll hear Stephen's Julia moment. We'll be right back. In the first part of Inside Julia's Kitchen, we launched the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia's favorite subject was definitely what's cooking. With summer in full swing, we're turning our attention to what to cook for this season of bounty. And summer is certainly all about outdoor cooking and grilling. Julia once said, the only time to eat diet food is while you're waiting for the steak to cook. And the most basic component of grilling a steak, not to mention all cooking, is fire. Julia was also all about learning the best methods, getting into the technical details, and trying out different kinds of gadgets. When you think about summer grilling and barbecue, there's one person even more expert than Julia, Stephen Reichlin. And like Julia, when he decided to really learn about barbecue, well, 
There was no stopping him. For this summer grilling season, Stevens turned his attention towards the most elemental of all cooking techniques, fire. His new Project Fire PBS television series and companion cookbook are a treasure trove of the best ways to grill, full of grilling tips and mouth-watering recipes. He even went to the foundation's hometown of Santa Barbara, well nearby, to film the series. So let's dive into summer grilling and playing with fire. Welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's certainly a pleasure to have you on, too. Once again, you, know, you seem to have outdone yourself. It's funny when you were talking yourself. about being in Julia kitchen, uh, Julia's kitchen. I closed my eyes, and I remember being at Julia's kitchen in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and also in the south of France. Ooh, well, 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 well you're, you might be getting, you might be revealing or previewing your Julia moments, but l- l- no, let, let's cover fire. The end. Perfect, perfect. So once again, you seem to have outdone yourself as there are so many helpful instructions and tips and cooking methods and mouthwatering recipes in your Project Fire book and TV series. And, and one thing I love about the book, while it does have a great steak on the cover, is there's lots of grilling vegetables and even pizza. So can you put this project in context of your previous books and TV series? Absolutely. So uh, two years ago, I wrote a book called Project Smoke, and it was an in-depth investigation of smoke. Now, I've touched on smoking in many of my previous barbecue books, but I came to a realization, and that is that all barbecued foods are smoked, but not all smoked foods are barbecue. So if you think about pastrami, for example, or smoked salmon, or scamorza or other smoked uh, cheese. Those are smoked foods. They're not barbecue. So I wanted to really devote a book to uh, the art of smoking. Well, Project Fire is the bookend to that project. It's really a book about live fire cooking, traditional grilling as you would do in a conventional grill, and also alternative methods that are sort of new on our horizon of grilling. And for you and all the different things you've done in this arena, is is it the be-all, end-all Bible of how to do, or is it still only one, one select grouping of, of what you've learned? Well, I would say that this is a book that focuses on the art of grilling, but more from the perspective of how we're grilling today and how I think we're going to be grilling tomorrow. I mean, if you think about a book like Planet Barbecue or the Barbecue Bible, those were also primarily about grilling, but written in a more repertorial fashion. I traveled around the world. I reported on what I discovered. And so how, how, how would you characterize that? How, how do you think we're—what does that mean, we're, how we're grilling today and how you think we'll be grilling tomorrow? Well, think about the evolution of grilling over the last 20 years. I mean, when I started, it was primarily uh, the center of the plate. It was primarily a protein, usually meat. Uh, today we grill everything. We grill the vegetables, we grill appetizers, we grill desserts. I even have two recipes for grilled cocktails in the book. Uh, a grilled sangria where you grill the fruit first and then a grilled peach bellini where you actually caramelize the peaches on the grill. Uh, in addition, you know, when I started, I mean, many, many grills that are, uh, we are, discovering and using with great delight today uh, didn't exist 20 years ago. Uh, Grills like a pedestal grill, wood-burning grills, uh, these were, so the ceramic cookers, I mean, they really weren't on the radar 20 years ago. 
Yeah, well, that's helpful to talk about because I always feel like, oh, I'm just not well informed that I didn't know about these devices. But you actually think that there's been a proliferation and a development of new or modified devices that have really expanded the repertoire. Absolutely. And, you know, first of all, kind of historical context, when I started uh, writing about barbecue 20 years ago, this is the 20th anniversary of Barbecue Bible, by the way. Uh, Congratulations. When I started, you know, about 30% charcoal grillers, 70% uh, gas grillers, maybe a little bit higher. That was pretty much it. Uh, the big green egg was a, you know, on the fringes of barbecue. Today, ceramic grills are one of the hottest uh, categories. Pellet grills didn't exist 20 years ago. Uh, very few people did smoking 20, uh, 20 years ago, except if you lived in Texas or the uh, American South. Um, in addition, wood-burning grills, you know, that was uh, really were really found primarily only in restaurants. Uh, today, wood-burning grill, grills are coming home. So, uh, so the devices we grill on, you know, a very different scenario. Multiple grill ownership, too. When I started, you know, you had your grill, your one grill. Today, it's not uncommon for people to have a charcoal grill, a gas grill, maybe a smoker, maybe a ceramic cooker. Uh, and the way we grill is also different. Uh, back 20 years ago, it was sort of special occasion food. Today, the outdoor kitchen has become an extension of our indoor kitchen. And I would venture to say in the summer, most Americans grill all week long. Wow. Yeah, no, that that's a lot of information. I like that multiple grill ownership. That, that yeah. sounds like... A- <laughs> We ought to come up with a good name, uh, MGO, MGO, not NGO, but MGO, multiple grill ownership. I like that. Well, I think you just went went over a bunch of stuff for my next question, which is what's hot in, in outdoor cooking this year? And you talked about the ceramic grill and the pellet grill. For those who are not steeped in it, can you talk more about those and how they work differently and, and where they fit into the trends? Sure. Well, if you imagine uh, a giant egg made out of either thick, ceramic walls, as in the Big Green Egg or the Komodo Kamado uh, or the Primo, those are examples of, uh, of Kamado-style grills. Uh, Weber has developed one that's made out of double-walled uh, steel, so there's an air pocket that provides the insulation. But the idea here is that these are grills that are uh, well-suited for direct grilling, for low-heat smoking, uh, they're extremely air efficient so that you can, with one load of charcoal, you can add hours and hours of, uh, of uh, smoking time. Uh, <coughs> another, <coughs> excuse me, another really big trend is wood grilling. And, you know, wood, unlike the, the classic debate is always uh, frame gas versus charcoal. But in fact, wood is the only fuel that produces both heat and flavor. Because by the time wood gets burned down to charcoal, all the flavor-producing compounds have burned out. Now, a charcoal-grilled food will taste different than a gas-grilled food because charcoal burns hotter and drier. So you get a different kind of caramelization than you do. Oh, so is that, is that the real difference? I don't think I ever understood that. It's not the, the smoke or whatever. It's really the heat that it produces. The kind of heat, the dry heat. Yeah, the high dry heat. Exactly. You know, another trend that I'd like to mention that I think is really important is summed up by the phrase, um, where your food comes from matters as much as how you grill it. 
Historically, barbecue used the cheapest commodity meat that was available, but more and more chefs and, dare I say, home cookers are looking for grass-fed beef or uh, heritage varieties of pork or wild seafood or uh, organic vegetables, heirloom vegetables. So that's another really big trend, you know, sort of our whole consciousness about the ingredient. I guess you could call that the Michael Pollan effect. <laughs> well, can we go back into the difference between charcoal and pellet and why why would you choose to pellet grill and use wood? Is it, is it just an easier way to use wood or what does that add? Well, to back up, a pellet grill is a grill that burns hardwood sawdust pellets. Uh, one example is the Memphis Woodfire Grill, Traeger's another example, Rectech. I mean, this is a very big category and growing all the time. The chief appeal of pellet grills is that they are super easy to use. They're really kind of set it and forget it sort of grills. Uh, they work well for smoking. They work well for uh, roasting. Uh, most pellet grills are not really grills in the sense that you can direct grill foods like steaks or chops or chicken breasts on them. Although a few of the models, like uh, the Memphis Woodfire Grill, do have a removable burn pot cover so that you can actually take the cover off the chamber where the pellets are burnt and you can direct grill over a pellet fire. But in general, mm. think outdoor oven that uh, y you know puts out a whiff of wood smoke. So what would you, if, if you're about to redo your backyard and you want an outdoor kitchen, what's the ideal combo, in your opinion, a wood pellet and what else? Well, for my outdoor grill, I would definitely choose a charcoal grill. Uh, you know, it's pretty hard to beat the uh, a Weber kettle grill or a Weber performer. Uh, mm. I might get a gas grill uh, because, you know, we're all time rushed and con the convenience of a gas grill is undeniable. I might think about a multi-fuel uh, multi grill, like, for example, a, uh, the Kalamazoo tri-fuel grill called the Kalamazoo Hybrid, uh, or the, the American Muscle Grill. And these are effectively grills that are propane-fired but have chambers that you can add wood or charcoal to, so you can be grilling over wood as well as gas. Uh, I get a ceramic cooker. Uh, if I were convenience-minded, I might get a pellet grill. In other words, I'm starting to uh, describe what my uh, my own personal backyard looks like, uh, which my wife uh, jokingly refers to as a hardware store showroom. But I like lots <laughs> of different kinds of grills. So, so the bare minimum number I think I got there was it, it has to be at least three? Bare minimum number is three, yeah. Bare minimum, you want a charcoal grill, a gas grill, and a smoker. And I will say that, you know, for a real die-hard fanatic out there, you might want to swap the gas grill out for a wood-burning grill. Uh, one example of that is the uh, the grill works. Uh, you see that at a lot of restaurants. It has a grate that raises and lowers with a flywheel. Uh, another newcomer that's more affordable is the Kudu grill. Wow. And so what do you think in terms of a smoker, what's the easiest type of smoker to use if you've not been doing it before? Well, the easiest smoker is probably like a water smoker like the Weber Smoky Mountain or an upright drum smoker like the, bit, um, uh, the pit barrel cooker. These are extremely easy devices. The most manly and, dare I say, 
kind of serious-looking smoke is, is the offset barrel smoker like you would find at a barbecue uh, restaurant in Texas. Wow. So, so it's sort of like the trend that that I think Viking and Wolf both brought in in the in the home kitchen of sort of commercial or commercial like equipment being the purview of the serious cook. It sounds like that that explosion and thing has kind of moved outside. That is an excellent point. Very well, very well said. So let, let's talk a little bit about techniques. And one of the things that I was taken with that, that, I, that I think has been discussed but was new to me is um, what on earth is caveman grilling? Yeah, caveman grilling, you know, I call it that because I'm sure it's the world's oldest method of uh, grilling. But what you do in effect is you get rid of the grill grate and you lay your steaks or vegetables or shellfish or even fruit directly on the embers, and you char the food, the, uh, you grill the food right on the embers. Now, the beauty of caveman grilling is, first of all, you get a surface charring that is slightly irregular. Uh, you even get sometimes a little tiny bit of gritty ash in your food, and it gives you a very different looking and tasting steak than if you were to cook the same steak over the same fire but on a grill grate instead of on the embers. It also looks incredibly cool, and you should never... Uh, overestimate the um, underestimate the power of looking cool on your grill. And and how does this affect one's hands? What, how do you how do you? You use very them? long handled spring loaded tongs and a leather grill brush, a uh, grill glove, and is absolutely no problem whatsoever. And then one, so if you take a steak and you submerge it in the embers, and, and then you take it, it out, you actually lay it do right you on clean top. it off, or now, you eat it as is? Now there's an alternative technique where you do bury foods in the embers, or more precisely in hot ash. Uh, the uh, Sephardic Jews used to use that to uh, roast eggs in the shell. It was a dish called huevos jaimanitos. But we're talking about actually laying the meat directly on the embers. And so do the embers, does the ash stick to the meat or only in a small amount because it's so hot it doesn't adhere? Well, what you do, clever you, is you, uh, you take a piece of cardboard and you fan the fire right before you put the meat on. So you basically blow away any loose ash. Then after you're done grilling, you brush the steaks or corn or eggplant or whatever you're uh, ember roasting with a... Uh, with a natural bristle brush to remove any stray ash that may have lodged on the meat. Okay, more equipment. And um, well, the brushes. Come on, you know, two bucks at a hardware store. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, w- w- more importantly, how would you describe the flavor difference between a steak made that way and? Okay, so let's take a steak. Uh, the surface is going to be a little crustier than if it if it's direct grilled. Uh, it will have a smoky flavor in a way that a grilled steak won't. And that's because you're actually charring part of the surface of the steak on the, uh, with the embers. And if you look at it closely, it's not the, it will not be quite as even as cooking on a grill grate. But you know what? It's in the irregularities that the true magnificence and soulfulness of this method emerge. Well, so we're moving on. It's a whole other level than getting the perfect grate marks on your meat. Yeah, you know, I think it was Leonard um, Cohn who observed that the the flaws, the cracks, let the light in. You know, and I think that one of the beauties of grilling is its inconsistency and its imperfections. And that's whatever type of grill you use. 
it's not like using a microwave. It's not like using an immersion heater or even an indoor oven, electric oven, where you can set a temperature. Every fire is going to be slightly different. Every piece of meat, every food that comes off the fire is going to be cooked slightly differently. Well, that should relax everybody that we can can live with all the imperfections because they're part of the art. We are embracing the perfections. Music to everyone's ears, I am sure. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back to keep raking Stephen over the coals. I'm sorry, it is impossible not to make bad puns when you're talking about grilling. We'll be right back. I just made a new recipe from Alice Waters' terrific cookbook, The Art of Simple Food, farro salad with parsley and shallots. This dish is great served at room temperature for summer picnics or outdoor buffets. I added in-season cherry tomatoes, which really made it sing. If you haven't tasted it before, farro is an all-natural ancient grain eaten by the Romans. Its texture is like chewy rice with a pleasing nutty flavor. Visit bobsredmill.com today, use the discount code JULIA25, all one word in all caps, for valuable savings and to try Bob's Red Mill Organic Farrow. Okay, Stephen's just come back from crisscrossing the country to promote the Project Fire book and PBS series. He was even in my hometown, the barbecue capital of Kansas City. So Stephen, what moments or memories stands out from uh, from your recent trip? Oh, there are so many. But I'll tell you, one is uh, I did a lot of PBS fundraisers as events when I crisscrossed the country. And at one, at a uh, an establishment called Smoke and Fire in Kansas City, Overland Park, actually, it's probably the best barbecue store in the country, we raised over $10,000 for the local PBS station. And that was gratifying both because we were able to raise so much money for the station and people actually drove in from four and five hours away to come see me. And, you know, I cannot tell you how much that means to me. Another great advantage of book tour is that it enables me to eat out in a lot of different cities, try a lot of restaurants that have kind of been on my radar. Two stand out in my mind in Chicago. One was called Elske and the other is called Band of Bohemia. What's interesting is they're both fine dining restaurants with extremely fine, refined, delicate food. One might almost even say sweet tweezer food. And yet at the core, the center, the focal point of their kitchen, both have wood-burning grills. So I would say sort of the big discovery, aha moment this summer is, you know, the world's most ancient grilling method and fuel is being paired with uh, the latest, you know, kind of... uh, delicate, refined culinary techniques in restaurants. Okay, so th- that sounded really great, but now now I think m- myself and the listeners, we need to know what did you eat at these places? What, what, were, what was on the menu at Smoke and Fire? Well, okay, Smoke and Fire was the event I did, the fundraiser for PBS. And let's see, at Smoke and Fire, we did recipes from the new uh, the Project Fire book. So let's see, there were... Uh, Chicken wings that were glazed with a, actually chicken drumsticks, smoke roasted and glazed with a maple syrup sriracha uh, bourbon glaze. They were pretty fabulous. We did a dessert. It's 
salt slab grilled chocolate brownie s'mores. Uh, we did a, uh, a main course. It was a pork loin that had been butterflied, stuffed with corned beef, uh, with pastrami, sorry, pastrami rather, sauerkraut, Swiss cheese, wrapped in bacon, uh, smoke roasted to make a pastrami, a Reuben pork loin. Okay, if your mouth is not watering now, I don't know what we'll get it to. Yeah, wow. Mm. And what about at these two restaurants? Say the names of the restaurants again that you went to in the Chicago that had the wood burn. Band of Bohemia. And it's really remarkable because it started out as an uh, artisanal craft brewery, and then they gradually incorporated a kitchen. And uh, I, I, just the, the food was amazing. Uh, one was, a, speaking of Julia, an absolutely perfect French omelet topped with Ocetra caviar, uh, delicate cream in the center, uh, another dish that really stood out. It looked almost like a terrarium, but uh, instead of dirt, it was chocolate mousse, and instead of moss, it was sort of pieces of a green pistachio cake. Uh, very playful, very artistic, very colorful. And then in the grill department, uh, they did a um, black bass that was grilled over a wood fire, served very simply, crusty skin, absolutely amazing. And do you know what kind of woods they were using? Uh, I believe there they were using a mixture of uh, oak and cherry. Interesting. And what was the other wood wood burning grill restaurant? The other restaurant is called Elske, E-L-S-K-E. And what was interesting there is that I don't know that I had anything that was solely grilled, but there were components of each dish that were smoked. They also, interestingly, did an omelet-like dish. I think omelet is probably the new, that's the, the, the new millennial sort of iconic dish for summer 2018. And this was an omelet that was stuffed with uh, wild locally uh, foraged mushrooms and smoked chicken. So very interesting. Uh, I also had a smoked cocktail, which I can, uh, I'm, it's hard to pass up any smoked cocktail when you're in Reichland world. Well, I, I can imagine that, yeah. All cocktails are often hard to pass up as a... Uh... Julia would have agreed, and she would have been thrilled about the comeback of the omelet, and maybe maybe slightly surprised of it as a summer dish. But fantastic! Absolutely, I was I was surprised myself. But uh, yeah, because a few years ago it was the uh, you know the sous vide egg that was cooked to thirty six degrees centigrade. Uh, but th- these are omelets, and it's funny when I make an omelet, I have always I've always differed strongly with the French. I think that. For me, I brown my omelet. I get the, the butter screaming hot. I kind of burn and brown the edges of the omelet. Because to me, that's where the flavor is. It's in, it's in brown. It's not in pale, anemic. But I have to say, this was an omelet that it was sort of like a custard channel through an omelet. Mm, I'm with you. I, I don't like too pale of an omelet, and I like my eggs thoroughly cooked. I was going to ask you about, as someone who's really into grilling things... Would you grill an omelet on 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 a on a grill or outdoors, or would you always make that on a either gas or on a, 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 a inside in a stove? Well, I haven't grilled an omelet yet, and because an omelet, by its very nature, has to be cooked in a uh, a frying pan or an omelet pan, I'm not sure I would grill it. Although maybe in a wood fire, some of the smoke would kind of curl over the edge of the pan. However, one of the dishes in Projects Fire, the book. In fact, the first chapter in Project Fire is a chapter on uh, grilled breakfast. 
And I think that sets the tone for the rest of the book. This this is not your father's or mother's grilling. So uh, for that, it's kind of a shirred egg that I remember making in Paris. Uh, but the eggs are cooked in a skillet topped with grated Parmesan cheese with heavy cream, butter. I make prosciutto bacon crumble it on top, breadcrumbs. But it's smoke roasted on a grill with hickory chunks on the fire. So it comes out smoky as well as sort of baked. And that is really uh, amazing and very characteristic of what I'm trying to do in Project uh, Project Fire. So, so that's more of a slow, smoked, baked dish rather than like an omelet quick cook dish? Well, I call it smoke roasted. It's not slow. I mean, the, the grill is at 400 degrees. The eggs cook in 8 to 10 minutes, so it's fast. But what's different is that you're, you fill the... the grill with wood smoke. So you taste it and it's some, you know, I'm eating shirt eggs, but they taste smoked. Wow. And and what type of wood do you use to get the, what flavor do you? You know, I'm going to tell you something that may sound a little uh, iconoclastic, but I don't think there's an enormous amount of difference between the flavors, the, the different woods, cherry, apple, alder, maple, hickory, oak. They all give you a pretty similar smoke flavor. The one wood that really stands out is mesquite because it's a little stronger and a little bit more bitter. But I wouldn't get too hung up about what kind of wood to use. I'm probably going to get a so lot of hate mail this afternoon. I was going to say, are we are we going to see people blindfolding, doing blindfold taste tests to see if they can well, identify? Well, I actually wood. did a blindfold taste test, which is what led me to this conclusion. <laughs> However, uh, you know, I encourage people to try their own, you know, try their own experiments. I mean, honestly, well, I, th- I think. I think historically people use the wood that grew in their backyards or the woods in the lot next to them. That's why oak is the wood of uh, Texas, while hickory is the wood of Kentucky, while alder is the wood of the Pacific Northwest, why apple is the wood of Michigan. You know, I think that's, I'm sorry, cherry is the wood of Michigan. And uh, I think that's why the different woods came about to begin with. Well, I think actually that reduces the stress for perfectionists like me who thinks that I need to make sure that I'm marrying the exact right wood for the dish. And so so that actually um, takes the pressure off. Hey, Stephen Reichland, stress reducer. I love it. <laughs> so uh, speaking of stress, how, how was the filming the series in the San Inez Valley? It looked like a stunning, amazing backdrop. Well, it was stunning, amazing, wonderful. You know, I've been working with the same crew for the last uh, eight years, so it's two weeks that are like a big family reunion. It was not without its challenges, however. Uh, They had near-century record-breaking cold the week we were out there. I'd say on the average in the daytime we were sort of in the 40s, and at night we were often in the 20s. And if you look closely at the show, you'll see I'm sort of dressed for summertime. But when we show the crew, which we always do, they're in parkas, wool hats, boots, mittens, you know. So it was really cold, but yeah. wonderful nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, I noticed you, you did sneak in a like a puffy vest in a couple places, I assume, yeah. out of complete necessity. I actually, I had two of those puffy, I had a puffy jacket and a puffy vest. And it turns out you shouldn't get those too near uh, the fire. I actually burned both of them off of me uh, during the course of the shooting. But, you know, there were a lot of high points, uh, too. And one was uh, we did some taping uh, on location. And this was a first for my shows. So we went to five restaurants that I really admire and learn from in Los Angeles, places like Gwen by uh, Curtis Stone 
and Kispaka by Nancy Silverton and Parks Barbecue in Koreatown. And it was really fun sort of being able to showcase other chefs and grill masters I admire and how they grilled. Uh, another thing that we did that was really cool, we taped at the Fess Parker Winery, and I got to ride horses with Fess Parker's granddaughter, who is the ultimate cowgirl and horsewoman. And I even got to uh, ride a YU steer. Wow. That was, how was pretty that? fun. And, and did you have a conversation about how he was going to be eaten later? Well, he turns out to be the sire of the sort of second and third generation of most of the Wagyu steers raised in the U.S. So they are not eating him anytime soon. Nope, they're uh, they're keeping him for his uh, his fertility. Good Lord, Stephen! Another pun is just erupting out of me. He's the sacred cow. <laughs> exactly. I, I, I couldn't I couldn't hold that one in. That was impossible. Or the sacred steer. Yeah, he, yes. Technically, yes. For all, for all those who might write in, he's obviously he's a steer, he's not a cow. Um, he's a bull. Um, but I couldn't make By that. Way, I couldn't uh, really try to transform the bun. Placid, so that was why I was able to ride him without uh, getting tossed like you'd see at a rodeo. Well, that also sounds like kind of inspiration from Julia in terms of doing your thing and doing your, your educational demos and sharing your knowledge and then visiting key chefs. So how do you do you feel like PBS series are are still very much similar to when Julia was on TV or do you think they've really changed quite a lot with the explosion in food television um i think they're very similar and i think they've kept the same mission which is to educate uh primarily first and foremost it's to educate yeah entertain but educate uh they are not you know there's such a mean spiritedness about so much television today you know and i'm proud that in my shows Nobody gets insulted, cursed out, or kicked off the show. You know, I mean, we try and be inclusive. And I think Julia would very much find her uh, her mandate alive and well on PBS. Well, that's reassuring to hear. So thank you for sharing that. So I wanted to ask you one last question because I always think, you know, you get these wonderful cookbooks and they have so many mouthwatering recipes. And then, you know, I know if you used to go visit Julia, she would just serve you popcorn as a starter. So what are you actually grilling and eating at home this summer? Well, we're, uh, let's see, last night we bought some beautiful fresh veal that came from a local farm called Gray Barn. And uh, we grilled the veal, uh, utterly just simple grilled veal chops. A little squeeze of lemon juice on it, so super simple. Uh, The one dish that, probably my favorite dish here in Martha's Vineyard, we get this amazing harpooned swordfish, which I grill the steaks over a wood fire, and then it's a very complicated sauce. You fry capers and butter and pour that mixture over the swordfish. Three-ingredient recipe that I, I would put up against anything on Planet Barbecue. Well, I think that's a great reminder that grilling makes, you know, it, it really is such a great method to just take really great ingredients and let them shine on their own without having to do a thousand and one things to make them edible. Absolutely. That's one piece of it. But another piece of it is as you travel uh, across barbe- Planet Barbecue, there are amazing traditional marinades, rubs, sauces, condiments, uh, that are also worth learning and mastering. So I could take that same swordfish and maybe tomorrow night I might do a Vietnamese lemongrass uh, kaffir lime marinade. Or I might uh, take the same 
swordfish and do a Mexican fire roasted salsa. So it's kind of fun to, to sort of travel around the world's barbecue trail using one common grilled protein and then varying the uh, flavors. Yes, I can can see that because that makes me think about one of my favorite recipes of yours, which is not in the Project Fire book, is your beer can chicken recipe, which is a great showstopper. But one of the things I love about it is you have a homemade barbecue rub that's part of the recipe, and it's super simple and it's super delicious. Absolutely. Equal parts, salt, pepper, paprika, and brown sugar. That's the uh, the or, or all-purpose barbecue rub, and it's great on anything. I know, and you do that, and you think, why have I been buying this stuff in a mix that's got weird chemicals in it when that's just as good and so easy to throw together? Amen. All righty. On that amen, we will be right back to talk to Stephen about his Julia moment. Stay with us. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of the latest episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. We're counting down the days to the 4th of July, so this week's theme is independence. After all, we're an independent food radio station. HRN is a labor of love. Staff, hosts, and listeners all share the belief that storytelling can change the world, one bite or sound bite at a time. We take a moment to ponder our founding mothers and fathers, specifically what they were drinking during the Revolutionary War. Rum in various combinations with beer and cider would be the order of the day. We highlight a story of self-sufficiency on the island of Vieques, Puerto Rico. The biggest thing we did was to start a lot of fermented vegetables because we knew the first thing to go would be refrigerator trucks coming to the island. And we examine the challenges facing independent grocery stores across the U.S. The struggle is real, but the future looks bright. Tune in to this week's episode of Meat in 3, available at heritageradionetwork.org and wherever you get your podcasts. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. Stephen, what's your Julia Moment? Well, boy, there's so many. You know, I lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts when she lived in Cambridge, and we would run into each other at Savinor's Grocery Store. Uh, I had her to my house for a uh, caviar tasting. Uh, it was a three-floor uh, rent-controlled walk-up, so she was a good sport to come. Uh, I used to have dinner at her house, and yes, she, you know, she served her failures as well as her successes. But I think the biggest piece of advice for me was uh, she said, you know, write about a subject that you can own, that makes sense to you. Now, my first three cookbooks were sort of French-oriented cookbooks because I had gone to the Lavarin Cooking School in Paris. I think, as I think back on it now, you know, Julia must have looked at those books sort of a little bit like, uh, you know, another Julia Child knockoff or clone. Uh, and it wasn't really until I uh, got the call to barbecue that I found a subject that deeply impassioned me that that was relevant and 
rationing for huge numbers of people all over the globe. But the second piece of advice was find a subject a lot of people were interested in and then find an approach that you and only you could do. So for me, that was considering my domain planet barbecue, packing a suitcase, visiting uh, to date, it's been 64 countries uh, on six continents to research barbecuing and grilling. And I think that's so. That's that's the broad subject. It's a subject uh, I have tried to own, but more importantly, it's a subject to which I have brought a an approach I don't think anybody else has done. And somebody once said, you know, I I, I do barbecue with a college education, and uh, maybe that's a piece of it. It's the intersection of food and history and culture anthropology, uh, recipes that everybody wants to try, but then stories that kind of set them in the context of the human condition. Well, and I have to add, I think it's that it's very clear your love for everything you've learned and your love of sharing it with other people and getting them to tackle it and try it, which Julie, I think, would have really and, and did appreciate. Absolutely. And Julie was Julie was an educator, and you know, there's so many things we learn from her: how to write a clear recipe, how to test, test, test until a recipe's right, um, how to think about you know food and ter- as a as, as a grammar and a vocabulary. Uh, that it's my pleasure. I mean, my God, you know, above all, it was all about the pleasure. It was all about you know, eating, sharing your meals with other people and taking pleasure in them. Well, I think you crammed in about a dozen Julia moments and lessons in there, but that was fantastic. And I, I'm going to remember that because I think most people would agree, unless you absolutely hate it, that most people would climb several floors for a caviar tasting. Yeah, exactly. That was really fun. Well, thanks for sharing all those memories and Project Fire with us. And uh, we hope everyone will fill us in about what they've uh, tried in their summer grilling exploits. Thanks for being with us. Well, thank you. And thank you for doing the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Let us know what you think about today's show. What are your grilling triumphs and trials this summer? We'd love to hear them. You can reach us via email or even send us a voice memo. Contact juliachildfoundation.org. You can follow the foundation on social media. Our handles are at Julia Child on Facebook, at Julia Child JCF on Twitter, and Julia Child Foundation, all one word, on Instagram. And my Twitter handle is at T Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N. To learn more about the world of Stephen Reichlin, go to barbecuebible.com. You can follow what he's cooking on social. His handle is at Stephen Reichlin, R-A-I-C-H-L-E-N, on Facebook and Instagram, and he's at S. Reichlin on Twitter. The book is Project Fire, Cutting-Edge Techniques and Sizzling Recipes from the Caveman Porterhouse to the Salt Slab Brownie S'mores, published by Workman this May. To watch Project Fire, the TV series, check your local public television station schedule. Thanks to WGBH for the Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef. Thanks to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, David Tadashore. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. Please remember to give us a review so new listeners can discover the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss upcoming episodes. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Downloads are available soon after on Stitcher, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. 
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.